This is the Hui Kala Baptist Church podcast, coming to you from the heart of Honolulu, Hawaii. Hui Kala is a dynamic family of faith committed to solid Bible teaching, discipleship, and helping you grow in your faith. Grab your Bible and prepare to dig deep into the Word with Pastor Anthony King. Grab your Bible, turn to the book of Philippians, chapter number four this morning, if you would. Philippians four is where we're at. We're winding down our series entitled Magnify Jesus. If you're missing the message so far, I think this is like message number 54 in the series. You've got a lot of catching up to do, but it's been good. So we're going verse by verse through the book of Philippians since the beginning of last year. And let me just tell you, we're winding it down. Uh, we're beginning to land the plane at this point. Uh, and we are probably, uh, we'll be, have this thing wrapped up by Thanksgiving, put it that way. So, um, We found ourselves in Philippians 4, verse number 8 today, and let me just tell you this, there's so much here in Philippians 4, 8 that we can't get it all into one week. I did you a favor today, you didn't know this, I could preach on this for two hours, but I broke it up into two one-hour messages. Isn't that a blessing? This is where you should say thank you, Pastor. Uh, You're welcome for the one person who's thankful. Uh, Maybe not an hour, but if you've been around here, maybe an hour. Uh, But uh, anyways... uh, I, the church that we went to, my kids said, Dad, they had 25 minutes of music and the pastor spoke for 20 minutes. And I go, and that's why we didn't like the church. Uh, but that was a joke. But um, anyways, I guess some people can preach. But I thought to myself, like 20 minutes? That's like a good introduction for me, right? That's something like getting things moving yet. But I'm going to get into it today because we've got a lot of ground to cover. Philippians chapter 4. Uh, we're going to be in verse number 8, but we're going to start up in verse number 4 just to give you context. It's critical that when you read the Bible, you read it in context. I need to know who this was written to, why it was written. I need to know what's happening before this verse, what's happening after this verse, how it all ties together. And so that's where we find ourselves uh, this morning. Philippians chapter 4, we're going to start in verse number uh, 4, but we're going to really focus on verse number 8 today. Philippians chapter 4, verse number 4. Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. Let your moderation be known unto all men. The Lord is at hand. Be careful for nothing. This is what we took a look at last week when I wasn't here. Uh, Philippians 4, 6. Be careful means not worry about anything. But by everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which passeth all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Verse number 8. Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, If there be any virtue, if there be any praise, think on these things. Again, so much good stuff in here. We can't cover all this in in one one, uh, sitting, so we're going to break it up over the next two weeks. We'll take a look at this passage. I do want to say before I jump in, uh, thank you to John Stoker and for for Trey Williams for filling the pulpit while I was gone. Great messages. I heard both of them. They were phenomenal. I will tell you, I don't have any flow charts today, so I hope that doesn't disappoint anybody. Just don't have them today. Uh, But um, I'm thankful for those guys jumping in. The Bible here talks about what we should think about. I'm entitled today's message, Think About What You Think About. Because the Bible tells us what we should put in our mind, and that leaves some room for some things that basically need to be left out of our mind, some things we need to let go of. And again, when you look at the context of this, verse number six and seven is talking about not having anxiety, not worrying about anything. But if we, we, we shouldn't worry about anything, but by everything, we should pray and ask God for him to fix it. And when we pray, we should pray with thanksgiving. And what happens? The peace that passes all understanding will keep or arrest or hold tight to our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. That's the promise. 
And then verse number eight follows that, and it says, but here's what you should think on. It tells us the things that we should fill our minds with. So the idea here is this. If you want to let go of anxiety, you want to let go of worry, don't focus on those things, but focus on these verse eight things instead. And we'll get to what all that is next week, because we haven't had the time to get into that today. Several years ago, man, it's probably been 10 plus years ago now, probably closer to 15 years, uh, we had gotten cable at our house because the Lakers had made the playoffs. And if you know the Lakers, it was a long time since they made the playoffs. And so we kind of have a rule in our house. We don't have time for a lot of cable TV and sitting down and flipping channels and stuff like that. So if the Lakers were in the playoffs, we got cable. And so uh, we got cable at the time because the Lakers were in the playoffs. And it, so um, I got to flipping through. I stopped on Fox News. And uh, some of the things they were talking about were interesting to me, and some of the things I found uh, interesting, some things I didn't know, and I thought, man, this is good. And so I would sometimes sit and watch two, three, sometimes even four hours of Fox News every night. And then that wasn't enough, and so I subscribed to the Sean Hannity podcast, and while I was at work in the day, I listened to two, three hours of Sean Hannity on his podcast, and then I'd get home and watch three hours of Fox News at night, and I thought to myself, I'm becoming more aware of what's going on in the world, I'm becoming more aware of what's taking place in our government, but what I found was I was really just getting mad about everything. I was mad about immigration, I was mad about health care, I was mad about tax reform, I was mad about campaign finance reform. I didn't even care about that two weeks ago, but now I'm mad about it, right? I got mad about the welfare system and people are taking advantage of that. I got mad about it, and I found that I was upset. And I would take three, sometimes four hours every night and get more angry. And I found myself, like, this is just not good for me. And my wife said to me, hey, I think you're taking this a little bit too far. It's just like, well, these people are ruining America. And she said, are you going to fix it? <laughs> well, no, but I want to. Okay, but well, you're not going to, so pipe down. And so uh, my wife, <laughs> thankfully, reeled me back in and says, hey, this probably isn't healthy for you. And so I said, you're right. And I cut it off all together, cold turkey. I don't watch a lot of news. I skim news headlines now for things that should be, could be helpful to me or that I should know about in our state and local government, things like that. But outside of that, I don't have a lot of bandwidth left for news. About three years ago or so, I came across the same situation where I was consuming a lot of, this time, social media. Because I wanted to know what was going on with all these people that I know across the world. You know, I mean, we've lived in so many different places. I know so many different people. I want to keep up with them, know what's going on uh, in the world with all these people that I know. But then what I found out was I was not only keeping up with them, but I found myself in my heart trying to keep up with them. Like, well, they got great family photos. I want great family photos. So we're going to get good family photos. Well, their kids are well-behaved. I want my kids to be well-behaved. Well, they got a nice car. I want to get a nice car. They live in a nice place. I want to live in a nice place. And I began to compare myself. And then I would take a look at other pastors that I knew that maybe I went to college with or maybe that started their church around the same time. And I began to compare their church with our church. Well, well, their church isn't as good as ours because of X, Y, or Z. And I found myself now consumed in my mind, in my heart, with what was happening with everyone else. So I made a decision like three years ago, I can't afford that, and I cut off my, my social media. I still have accounts because I have to post stuff for our church, but I can't be consumed with that. Because I found this, it was stealing my joy, and it was stealing my peace. And that's precisely what the Bible tells us. That basically, what happens in our mind eventually goes to our heart, and eventually comes out in our words, our actions, and our deeds. So whatever's in my mind goes to my heart, comes out in the words that I say, the actions that I do, and the deeds that I perform. It, it just, without fail. 
We are shaped by the things that we see and the things that we hear. You just can't get away from that. The Bible tells us that again and again and again. The book of Proverbs says, keep thy heart or protect thy heart with all diligence because out of it are the issues of life. That every good thing or every bad thing flows from your heart according to the Bible. So the Bible says protect your heart. How do you do that? You have to protect your mind first. Every dad that's ever left his wife and kids, it started with the thought that he had in his brain of, I don't need this, I deserve to be happy. It started with that thought, and then turned into a feeling in his heart and an action that came out in his life. Every mom that's ever checked out on her kids made a, a decision first in her mind, I don't need this stuff, I deserve to be happy, when is my time? Every workplace drama that you have, every fight, argument, automatically started with a thought. And so the Bible says, protect your thoughts. Jesus says in Luke chapter 6, verse number 45, a good man out of the good treasure of his heart bringeth forth that which is good, and the evil man out of the evil treasure of his heart bringeth forth that which is evil. For the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So Jesus said this, if there's good stuff coming out of your life, it comes from a good heart. If there's ugly stuff coming out of your life, it's coming from an ugly, evil heart. And Jesus said this, all the words that come out of your mouth, they're just an overflow of how you really feel. So sometimes in counseling with couples and stuff like that, I've had guys say things before like, you know, I wish I never married you. It's just like, ooh. And he said, well, I just said that because I was really upset at the time. Ah, that was already in your heart somewhere, man. I don't even know where that came from. I know where it came from. It came from your heart. <laughs> when I talk with people uh, and tell them that I'm a pastor, and let me just tell you this, if you ever want to get out of a conversation, tell people you're a pastor. Uh, they'll, they'll flee like rats on a sinking ship. Like nobody wants to talk to you once you identify as a pastor. And so, and if you're, if you're a woman and you say you're a pastor, they'll just be, be even more scared because you're not, only, not really a pastor, you have bad theology too. And so, <laughs> that really wasn't a joke. Uh, but, but anyways, sometimes I'll talk with people and they'll, they'll use a curse word and they'll say, oh, pardon my French, I don't know where that came from. Oh, I know where it came from, it came from your heart. Because the Bible says that corrupt communication proceeds out of your mouth and Jesus says out of the abundance of your mouth, your heart is speaking. And so if you even as a Christian use foul language or what the Bible calls corrupt communication, let me just help you with this this morning. You have a heart problem. And here's the good news. Jesus fixes hearts. That's what he does. So you're not doomed to a life of, of sin. God wants to fix that. But please understand, your heart is what is corrupting you, corrupting your language, corrupting your actions, your deeds. It all starts in your heart. Mark chapter 7, verse number 20, the, some people had gotten upset with the disciples because they didn't appropriately sanitize their hands before they ate. Somebody scolded him for that. Here's what Jesus said in Mark chapter 7, verse number 20. And he said, that which cometh out of the man defileth the man. For from within, out of the heart of men proceed evil thoughts, evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lasciviousness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a man. 
Hey, nobody is defiled because they didn't wash their hands. You're defiled by what's already inside of you. And Jesus says all that stuff, 13 things he named off there, start in your heart. So you want to ruin your life, easy way to do it, ruin your heart first. The rest will just take care of itself. If you have a corrupt heart, just put it on cruise control and sit back and enjoy the ride, and you'll go off the deep end really, really quickly. That's what the Bible says. But if you want to live a life that pleases God, you want to live a life that has God's blessing upon your life, here's what you need to do. You need to keep your heart with all diligence. Protect it. And how do you do that? By the thoughts that you think. You see, we have to set filters on our mind by protecting our eyes and our ears. Every thought that you had came from somewhere. Everything, from something that you heard, something that you saw. I can't tell you how many guys I sat down with and tried to encourage them to not leave their spouse, and they say, well, I got a friend at work, he left his wife, and he's never been happier. So what he saw and what he heard affected what? His heart. And now he's made a decision to defy God and defy God's law because he knows better. I can't tell you how many guys who I've talked with that say, I'll look at pornography because my wife doesn't give me what I need. Hey, you've bought into a lie that that makes your sin okay, and it doesn't. It ruins your life. And let me just say this as well. Pornography is a cancer that is ruining America and our society and ripping it out by the very fabric. And we have not begun to see what happens with a generation that is raised on pornography alone. Sexual intimate relationships between a husband and a wife is one of the most beautiful things that God ever created inside of marriage. Beautiful. It doesn't get any better than that. It's a a picture of how much Jesus loves us It's a picture of a relationship that is so deep and so unique that two people carry it out in a covenant for the rest of their lives. It's so beautiful. But you take teenagers who don't know anything about that and all they know is what they see in pornography. They think that's how life really works because nobody told them any differently. And look, pornography was around when I was a kid and when I was a teenager, but we haven't begun to see what an entire generation raised on pornography is going to look like. And let me just tell you, it's going to be ugly. You say, well, what do we do? We protect our ears, our eyes. And if God's given you children, you protect their ears and their eyes. If God's given you a spouse, you protect their ears and their eyes so that we can protect hearts. I I am so grieved with parents who say, well, kids are going to see it anyways. I'd rather them see it at home. Heavens. Well, my kids are going to drink one day. I'd rather them get drunk at home when they're in high school. That way they won't ever go out to a party and get drunk. Oh, yeah, I'm sure that's the cure for all of it. How about we teach our children righteousness, holiness, a God who desires to be glorified? How about we talk about sin in our house? How about we protect our children from sin instead of throwing them headlong into sin? I'm talking about protecting our hearts because our life will go as our heart sets the path. Now, Philippians chapter 4, verse number 8 is a fascinating, fascinating passage of Scripture. It tells us, here's the things that you should think. Now, again, it's important for us to understand this verse in context with the rest of the Bible. Get this. 
you must read the Bible in context. You need to know who it's being written to, why it's written to them, what it means, how they received it, how they perceived it, what's taking place before this verse, what's taking place after this verse. Understand the words that are chosen specifically. In Philippians 4.8, you might think that which is true and that which is honest are the same thing. They're not. True and honest mean two different things. We need to figure out why as we study the Bible. Because if we don't, if we're lazy with our biblical interpretation, when we're lazy with our Bible study, we can take verses out of context and make them mean things that they don't really mean. There's a popular form of counterfeit Christianity that uses this verse as one of the foundations for their need to think positive thoughts and good things will come to you as a result of it. So it's important to understand before we ever even jump into this uh, to understand what Philippians 4.8 is not saying and being intentional with your thought life. Now, your thought life is important as anything else. Jesus says this, you've heard don't commit adultery, that's good. Don't commit adultery. But I tell you that any man that looks at a woman with lust in his heart has already committed adultery with her where? In his heart. So with Jesus, your thoughts that you think are just as important as the actions you commit because he knows that one of these days your thoughts are not going to be enough. You're going to want more. So Jesus says, just stop it at the thoughts. The thoughts themselves are sinful. So sometimes we ask people, like, hey, how's your walk with God been? Hey, how's your Bible reading? How's your prayer life? Stuff like that. I have a question for you. How is your thought life? Are you thinking and dwelling on thoughts that you should not, that are contrary to the Word of God? You might think to yourself, like, poor, my marriage is a wreck. I could do so much better if I wasn't held down in this relationship. That thought just needs to be flushed. That's not helping you. That's not going to be good for you. Well, I'm trying to do this whole Christian life thing, but it's just not working out for me. Maybe I'll just go back to doing things my own way. That thought just needs to be flushed. You can't afford it. So again, we need to focus on our thoughts because our thoughts go to our heart. Our heart eventually turns into words, actions, and deeds. So when we talk about being intentional in your thought life, we're not just talking about the power of positive thinking. We're not talking about just having positive thoughts and positive energy and, oh, bad things are happening to you because of the negative thoughts that you think. That's not what this is talking about. There's a popular little booklet that was written by a psychologist back in the 70s uh, called The Power of Positive Thinking. And basically the idea was you need to think positive thoughts and positive things will come to you. And that negativity in your life is because you're having negative thoughts. And you should affirm yourself more. You should stand in the mirror. And you should say things like, I'm good enough, I'm smart enough, and doggone it, people like me. Shame on you for all those that got that reference. People that are old like me probably got that. But again, it's not about affirming yourself and having positive thoughts and you're, you'll be better because you're thinking more positively. That's not what this passage is talking about. This passage is not talking about declaring by faith what you want to happen. I'm sorry, uh, it's not about altering your circumstances by changing your thinking. There is a false counterfeit version of Christianity that is not Christian that says this, whatever you think will ultimately change your life. And while that can be true, it's only partially true in the right context. They would say things like, if you are sick, you just need to think in your mind, I am well. 
And I need to repeat that. I am well. I am well. And the doctor says, actually, you're really sick. I'm not. I am well. I reject that negative thought. And this is funny to us because you're like, that is such a crock. I know. But here's the worst part about it. People put their faith in it because they say, that's what Philippians 4.8 says. It says, just think on the good things, the true things. And I, I, I reject any negativity. I am not poor. I am rich. I am rich. I am rich. Oh, you can't afford your rent this month. I can because I am rich. Your bank account says otherwise. I am rich. <laughs> I am well-liked. Actually, you're not. Everybody hates your guts. No, I'm not. I am well-liked because I am smart, I am powerful, and I am good. No, you're not. And so again, the idea that we can just say things and change our life, it's, it's, it's nonsense. And again, people who call themselves Christians use passages of Scripture like this out of context, and it's not helpful at all. And sometimes one of the, the proof texts, be careful with people with proof texts, because they generally take verses out of, uh, out of context to prove their point. One of the proof texts they use for changing your thinking and having more faith to change your uh, reality, Matthew 17, 20, where Jesus says, hey guys, you couldn't do this because of your unbelief, but if you have the faith of a grain of mustard seed, you can say to that mountain, get out of here and it'll be gone. You can move mountains with a grain of mustard seed of faith. And sometimes people look at that and go, well, Jesus says we can move mountains if we have faith, so I can declare myself rich. I can declare myself well. I might have cancer in my body. This is the worst part of all. People say, I'm not going to the doctor. I'm refusing treatment because I believe that God can make me whole. Can God do that? Yes, but God also gave you doctors who know a lot more about life than you do. You are not a medical professional. You should listen to people that God places in your path that speak wisdom in your life. That's all, that's all I'm saying. And so there are people who believe that they can speak themselves to, to be free of cancer. Now, could God do that if he chose to? Yes, but that's not how God works every single day. And so they'll use verses like this to say, well, we can move mountains. Again, a good hermeneutical tip for you. Hermeneutics means the study of Scripture. We take the Bible literally unless it is obviously speaking figuratively. I'll say that again. We take the Bible literally unless it's obviously speaking figuratively. For example, for us, we are biblical literalists. The Bible says that God created the earth in six days and rested on the seventh day. We believe that God took six 24-hour days and created everything that we see. And again, we don't have time to unpack why we believe that, but because the Bible says it. And we're not trying to shoehorn science into this to make it fit and all work together. We say God's word stands alone. We say that six days, it happened. We're also biblical literates in the fact that the Bible says that Jonah was swallowed by a great fish in the book of Jonah, but Jesus says that Jonah was swallowed by a whale. We believe that Jonah was in the water, got swallowed up by a whale, and lived in the belly of the whale for three days. That literally happened, we believe, because the Bible says so. You say, well, doesn't everybody believe that? No. Some people interpret the Bible allegorically. When you interpret the Bible allegorically, basically the Bible isn't a true story. It's just uh, fables, kind of like Aesop's fables. That Jonah didn't really get swallowed by a whale. He was just in a really dark place in his life at that time. Nothing was going right. He was having problem after problem. He just got so down and depressed, and it was like he was swallowed by a great fish for three days, and he couldn't find his way out. No, that's not what happened. We interpret the Bible literally. Jesus uh, says, you can move mountains. Can we move mountains? He's obviously speaking figuratively. 
Because here's the thing. If I had the faith of a grain of mustard seed, which I do, I could say to Diamond Head, get out into the ocean. It would be, bam, gone. Can you imagine the chaos and destruction that would happen if our super church kids found that out this afternoon? <laughs> like seriously, like, hey, move that mountain. Hey, pick that car up. Hey, do this. Hey, I'm going to fly today. I have faith, you know. That's not what he meant. The psalmist David says, under the wings of God will I find my rest. God doesn't stand out there with big, huge wings like a bird, and David lays down and takes a nap underneath his wings. It's a figure of speech that he's using. So we interpret the Bible literally unless God's speaking figuratively. When God says we can move mountains, he's speaking figuratively. I've seen people try to, to raise people from the dead because of verses like this. Well, I need to have enough faith. Grain of a mustard seed, I can have faith, and I'll speak it into existence. That's not what Philippians 4 is talking about. It's also not uh, manifesting your future. Well, Jesus says in Luke chapter 11, ask and you shall, it shall be given unto you. Seek and you shall find. Knock and it shall be opened unto you. So all I have to do is ask God for what I want and it's going to magically manifest itself. So if I say I want a new car, I need to believe with positive thoughts that that new Tesla SUV with the gull wing doors that I've been looking at, that's mine, and I need to declare it. And you say, how are you going to pay for that? And I say, I rebuke your negativity. <laughs> I rebuke your lack of faith. Get thee from me, Satan. I believe it. And you say, well, that's just not realistic. Well, my God doesn't deal in realities. He deals in faith. And again, it sounds super spiritual on the surface, but you begin to look and you say, wait a minute, that's not how God works. God doesn't just give you the idols of your heart because that would make God an idol giver to our idolatry. God doesn't work that way. And the book of James tells us, hey, you ask and you don't get what you ask for because you're asking with the wrong intention, that you want it for your own lust. God's not an idolater. He doesn't want you to be either. So it's not about manifesting your future. It's not, not about declaring by faith what you want to happen. Well, I say by faith, this is going to happen. It doesn't work that way. And again, people who say that, claim that they have the ability to heal people. Not biblical. Does God heal people? He absolutely does, but he doesn't do it by placing your hands on somebody's forehead and they shake and fall down on the ground. It's not how God works. And again, if you understand anything about Scripture, Jesus would often find people on the ground, touch them, and they would stand up and walk. Not people who were walking, hit them on the forehead, and then they lay down. That's kind of the opposite of how Jesus worked, right? Just, and here's the thing. Jesus always healed 100% of the time with visible power. He didn't heal people who had a bad back, and they stand up and they go, how's your back feel? Well, there's 5,000 people watching me. I think I'm going to say it feels a little bit better than it did when I came in. No, he healed people who never walked before, people who were blind, people who were deaf. People who had no holes in their ears automatically could hear for the first time in their lives. And so again, it's not about declaring by faith that people can be healed. Can people be healed supernaturally by God? Absolutely, every single day of the world. But it doesn't happen because you and I force God to. And again, one of the misappropriations of verses like this and other verses that you find, again, out of context, not in keeping with the rest of the Bible, is the idea that God is obligated to answer our prayers. Did Jesus say or did he not say? 
whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give it to you. Did Jesus say that? Somebody help me. Did Jesus say that? Absolutely. So I say, God, I want that new Tesla that I saw, and now God's obligated to give it to me, right? No, that's not how that works at all. Well, that's what the verse says. And if I ask God for something, he doesn't give it to me, then that makes Jesus a liar, and Jesus isn't a liar. Wait, wait, wait. You took a verse out of context to make it say something that it wasn't supposed to say. And so again, I heard a pastor one time say, one of the most blasphemous things, he said, if you're a child of the king, you better start living like a child of the king. Children of the king don't wear tattered clothes. They get a new wardrobe, and some of you need to go out this week and get a new wardrobe and walk like you're a child of the king. Children of the king don't drive around in old beat-up cars. Children of the king don't take the bus. You need to go out and get yourself a vehicle that shows you're a child of the king. It's just like, that is blasphemy to the 10th level. And that is not at all what Scripture and this idea of focusing on the things that God tells us to focus on, that's not what it means. There's a popular movement in counterfeit Christianity called the Word of Faith movement. It's a form of counterfeit Christianity where God exists to serve us. You see, God just exists to make me happy. God is here to give me the things that I want. God exists to serve my needs and to make my life better. I very rarely yell at the television, uh, but I, I did in this case here. I don't, I don't watch sports on TV. I really don't. I, couldn't, I could not care less about football. I know that hurts some of your hearts, and I'm sorry. But I, I, don't, get a, I don't get excited at, at sporting events and stuff like that. Even when I watch the Lakers play on TV, I don't get fired up about it. I saw this on television years ago, and it, I got angry, and I yelled at the TV. Uh, and, uh, and you'll see why in just a moment. I'm going to show you this clip between Joel Osteen and Oprah Winfrey. So imagine in your mind two pagans. Wait, wait, wait don't, just don't start it yet. I didn't say start it yet. Carla, settle down. <laughs> imagine two pagans sitting around discussing theology, right? That's what we have here. And so we're going to play a game, and I want you to, to, to play along with me. It's called Spot the Heresy. And so it's, 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 it's about a three... It's about a three-minute clip, and I want you to figure out all the things that are theologically wrong with what you're about to see. But here's the worst part about it. I'll say, I'll say the worst part for later. Watch this clip, and uh, I don't know about you, but I saw about a, two dozen theologically problematic statements that made there. But no, notice the, the idea here. I don't know how I can help other people if I'm broke, if I'm depressed, and I don't feel good about myself, that God exists to help me to feel good about myself. God exists me to, to, to bless me financially. God, God exists to help me to leave my kids better than I was. One of the things he said that was super problematic to me that he said was, you know, you might be in the projects, but you don't have to stay there as if that's a, not a, a thing to be proud of. Maybe you have a single mom who's doing her best for her kids, but that's not enough. And he said, some people just haven't broken through in that area of, of financial prosperity. And it's just all of this is the idea that God exists for us. God exists to, to make me happy. God exists to prosper me, not only financially, but also with all the other things that I want in life, and that's problematic. And this word of faith is, is super popular even here in our own city of Honolulu. Uh, just a couple blocks from here is a massive word of faith church, uh, also by the name of Word of Life. Uh, man, two blocks from here, and the majority of people there don't know any worse, don't know any better. And that's the worst thing about the clip that I see here is people watch this and they think, that's Christianity. God wants me to be happy. If I'm not happy, then something's gone wrong somewhere. That if I tried really hard to follow God and, and follow the plan that the church set forth, and I began to tithe, but I didn't see the blessings financially that everybody else saw, 
I go to this church for maybe a couple months, couple years, couple of decades, and I don't see the, quote, breakthrough that everybody else does, there's only two things that could be wrong. Either I'm not good enough, I wasn't faithful enough, I didn't have enough faith, I didn't believe hard enough, I thought negative thoughts had impacted that. Or here's the worst part that most people come away with because they say, I did everything they told me to. Then it must be that God let me down. God didn't come through for me. God promised all these things. I did everything he said that he would, and God failed me. And that's the most miserable part about this is because when people get stuck into a cycle like this, then it's ultimately going to fail. And when it does, they point the finger back at God. But God says, no, 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 that never was biblical Christianity to begin with. (laughs) The other thing he said is, she said, there's not enough doctrine, not enough Christ. And he goes, yeah, yeah, I know, but I'm just trying to do what God wants me to do. I just have to wake up and do what I feel is right. I think it was Charles Spurgeon that says, no Christ in your sermon, then have a seat until you have something worth preaching. And I think to myself, man, what a great idea. If I can't preach Jesus and I can't preach Bible doctrine, I have nothing left to say. And so situations like this, super problematic, and this is not biblical Christianity. Counterfeit Christianity makes me the central character of the Bible. I'm always the hero. The Bible is a book for me to better myself. It's really just a self-help manual is what it is to help me through the problems in life and everything that comes up. I'm, I'm automatically the central character of the Bible. That I need to be like Joseph when I'm faced with adversity, when I'm wrongly accused, when I'm cast into prison and I stay there for a long time, I just need to have a good attitude and wait because my victory's right on the other side. Again, word of faith is, is popular for words like victory, words like breakthrough. Your victory's coming right on the other side. You're getting ready to break through. You just need to hold on. And just like Joseph who is in the prison, God brought him out and set him up as Pharaoh's second man. And you're going to need to be like David. And David went forth against Goliath and nobody else wanted to. You just need to stand by faith and fight that Goliath. Whether that's your boss or whether it's your situation or whether it's your financial problems you're having. You just need to stand like David with five stones in your, in your bag and your sling in your hand. You need to fight that giant because breakthroughs on the other side of that. <laughs> the problem with all that is that none of those stories are about you. None of them. We sometimes refer to Joseph and definitely David as types of Christ. They're pictures of Jesus Christ. You know who was like Joseph who was rejected by those who were his own people? Jesus Christ was. You know who took on slavery when they should not have been a slave? Jesus Christ did. You know who was placed underground for three days when he wasn't supposed to be? Jesus Christ was. And when he came out of the grave, where did he go? To the right hand of the Father, just like Joseph was second in command under Pharaoh. Hey, Joseph is a picture of Jesus, it's not a picture of us. You and I are the bakers that forgot Jesus. If you want to go through the story. You know who David is a picture of? Jesus Christ. What's the great giant of your life? It's not financial prosperity or, well, or not having enough money. Your greatest problem is sin. Your problem is death is coming for you. And you know what Jesus did? Jesus stood up against the giant, and he slew the giant. And when he was done, he went and cut off the head and held it up victorious to prove that he is the King of kings and Lord of lords. And no one needed to fear the giant ever again because it had been killed once and for all by the king to be Jesus Christ. And so Jesus came and conquered sin, death, and the grave, and he held up a severed head victorious 
Where were you and I? We're the scaredy cats in the tents going, who's going to fight? We can't do this on our own. You're not the hero of the story. Jesus is. You're not the central character of the Bible. Jesus is. But when God exists to serve my needs, when God exists to be who I want him to be, when God exists to make my life better, it simply makes Jesus a tool for giving us a better life. Jesus is just a way to get the stuff that I want. I heard Jesus will fix my marriage, so I'm willing to give that a shot because my marriage will be better. Hey, I heard Jesus will fix my working conditions, and so I'm willing to give Jesus a shot because he'll make my working conditions better. Hey, I heard that if I give, God's obligated to give to me, so I'm going to give money when the offering basket comes by because then God will financially make me better off. You have greatly misunderstood the Bible because Jesus isn't just simply a tool to give you a better life. He's not a life enhancement that you throw on. Biblical Christianity says we exist to serve God, fulfill his purpose, and accomplish his master plan. Let me tell you this. God was just fine without you, and he'll be just fine after you're gone. You're not as important as you think you are. Now, lest you think that I'm saying you don't matter to God, that's not what I'm saying at all. I'm just saying we're not as important as we think we are. And sometimes even biblical Christianity can get the the shoe on the wrong foot sometimes. I've heard people, well-meaning people, say that God loves you. He does. That that God wants a relationship with you. He does. God wants to save you. He does. That if you were the only person on earth, God would have died for you. He would have. That you can take John 3.16, for God so loved the world and put your name in there. So for God so loved Anthony King that he gave his only begotten son. Yes, he did. We sing... Songs, I grew up in a, a Southern Baptist church. We sing what's called Southern Gospel, which is basically bad country music with Christian lyrics, if you're not familiar. And I'm sorry if you like Southern Gospel. I'm not, I'm, I'm, but one of the songs I used to sing, when he was on the cross, I was on his mind. Like Jesus is, is suffering for the sins of the world and all he can think about is me. Like then, you know, if, if God had a refrigerator, your picture would be on the front. If you had a wallet, your picture would be in the front of it. You know, all these, but we get this idea that we have some elevated value to God. God doesn't love you because you're lovely. God loves you because he's gracious. God could very easily hate your guts because you're wicked to the core. But God chooses in his grace and his mercy and his compassion to love you despite the fact that there's nothing lovely about you or I. And so, Biblical Christianity makes Jesus the central character of the Bible. The Bible's just about Jesus. Are there things that you and I can learn and glean from that? Yes, for sure. But that's a byproduct of who the Bible's really about. It's about Jesus. Genesis chapter 1, verse number 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The Bible tells us that Jesus created everything and there was nothing made that was not made by Jesus Christ himself. So Jesus Christ is in Genesis 1-1 creating the world by the word End of the book of Revelation, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Beginning in the Bible, end of the Bible, and everything in between, all about Jesus. He's the, the central character of the Bible. He's the hero of the Bible, 100 times out of 100. Biblical Christianity places us as a small part of the eternal story of God's magnificent glory. God has a story that began before the worlds began, and it will go until after all of this is gone and burned. He's got a plan for all of that. And you and I are a fly on a camel's behind in the big story of God's great sovereign plan. 
Now, does that mean that we don't matter? It couldn't be further from the truth. The Bible says that there's not a bird that falls from the sky that God doesn't know about. There's not a hair on your head that isn't numbered. God intimately knows and loves you dearly. But please don't misunderstand that life is not about you. It's about Jesus Christ. It's about the glory of God. Now, why does any of this matter in relation to Philippians 4.8? Because when the Bible tells us the thoughts that we're supposed to think and dwell on, the things that are supposed to resonate with us and go on in our brain, we need to make sure that we have the right perspective. Because perspective changes everything. The way that you view a situation determines how you feel and how you think about a given situation. For example, I say the word coronavirus, good or bad, most people in the room would say bad. Death, destruction, decimation. Okay? Well, if you talk to the world's billionaires, you take, for example, Elon Musk, was 27 billion was his net worth at the beginning. He's currently at $219 billion. His net worth has increased $180 billion in the last 20 months. Good year for him? I'd say it's a great year for him. Jeff Bezos, $114 billion at the beginning, increased his net worth by $80 billion. He's now worth almost $200 billion in the last 18 months. On top of that, he took a rocket to space and came back in a cowboy hat. I would say, pretty decent year for the guy, right? But it's all about perspective. Bill Gates added $40 billion to his net worth over the last 18 months. I'd say for these guys, it's been a really good year for them or, or so. If you're judging based on their checkbooks. Let's take a look at... Jeff Bezos, his marriage fell apart. His wife took half of everything that he had. I'd say probably not so great of a year from that perspective. Bill Gates was outed as a pervert that sent emails to coworkers at Microsoft even after his bosses told him not to. And his wife left him, took half of everything he had. Not a great year for him from that perspective. I think most of us in this room could take the last 18 months and say, God's shown me a lot about my priorities and what's really important in life. God's helped me to recalibrate my value system on the things that are really important to me now. The last 18 months for me personally have been a, a time of personal growth where I've grown a lot. I've learned a lot about life and the type of person that I want to be and the person that God wants me to be. So from that perspective, I could say, it's been really good for me personally. For our church, our church has grown over the last 18 months. New people have come, gotten saved, baptized, discipled. People are growing in their faith. From that perspective, I'd say this has been a really good thing for our church. I know that there are false teaching churches in our, our city that closed last March that never reopened. I'm just going to go ahead and say that's a win. Sorry, not sorry. So it all depends on what perspective you look at it from. But the problem is, is we generally look at things from a negative perspective. How has this affected me? What does this do for me? How does this make my life better or worse? And that's the wrong perspective. You see, when it comes to salvation, we often look at things from the wrong perspective. You see, the world says that deep down, everybody is good, and we just need to bring out that good inside of them. 
that inside of every human being, on the outside of this nasty, ugly cocoon, inside is this beautiful butterfly that's just waiting to get out and stretch its wings. And if we could just make room and make space and help clear out some space in this person's heart, that beautiful butterfly could come out and we could see it for all of its beauty because everyone deep down inside is really, really good. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says the best thing that you have is what people see on the outside, that from there it just gets worse. You say, well, that's not true. Jesus said to the Pharisees, you look great on the outside, but you're whitewashed tombs full of dead men's bones inside. He said to them, the best thing that you have going on for you is what we, people see on the outside. And so the human heart, the deeper that we go, the worse it gets. You see, the Bible actually says that deep down, everyone is wretched and must die to be reborn. That's what the Bible says. That when you peel back the layers of the human heart, you don't find more good, you find more sinfulness. That the deeper that we go into your heart and mine, we just find infection, pus, repugnant smells, filth, garbage. And you know what God says with a heart like this? He says, I can't do anything with this. This has to die. This has got to go. Because sometimes people think that God just kind of puts a couple of band-aids on some stuff here and there and kind of cleans up the outside and pats us on the bottom and sends us on our way. God's not in the cleanup business. God is in the death and resurrection business. The Apostle Paul says that the old man is dead and the new man is alive in Christ. That's what the Bible says. So Christianity is not a self-help band-aid program. It takes sinners who are on their way to hell. It takes a wretched human heart. And instead of dying a physical death, God says you're going to die a spiritual death first. Ephesians chapter 1 says we were dead in our trespasses and sin, but we were made alive by Jesus Christ. And if you'd be willing to put your faith and trust in Jesus as your Savior, if you would be willing to repent of your sin and declare Jesus Christ as Lord, you can be saved or born again. And you can't go to heaven without being saved or born again. No man should enter the kingdom of God unless he's born again. John chapter 3, verse number 3. It's in red letters because Jesus said it. No way but you must die and be reborn, born again. That's what the Bible says. And so perspective on our, who we are as people, that's a perspective issue. The world says you're okay, we just need to find the good inside of you. The Bible says there's no good inside of you whatsoever. You need to die and Christ needs to live through you. So when it comes down to the thoughts that we think, we have to evaluate everything from a biblical perspective. That's why I challenge you to, be a student of the Word of God. Read the Bible every single day of your life. Surround yourself with other Christians. Talk about spiritual things because that shapes your mind. Just like the guy who would watch three to four hours of Fox News, it shapes your mind. You spend three, four hours a day in the Bible, it's going to shape your mind in a serious way. You spend times in a small group on Wednesday nights talking with other Christians about the Bible, that's going to shape your mind. You decide to grill burgers on a Friday night and invite Christians over to your house. That's going to shape your heart and your mind. That's what God wants for you. And we have to look at things from a biblical perspective. We can't look at things from, did my bank account go up or down? We can't look at life as, 
Do I get to move into that new house that I want to move into? We can't look at life as, does this advance my career? We have to say, what does the Bible say? And having a biblical perspective will change your life. And because Philippians 4.8 tells us, think on these things. If you go back to Philippians chapter 4, verse number 8, Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue, if there be any praise, think on these things. That tells us that we have the power to choose where our attention goes. You get the opportunity to choose what goes on in your brain. And you can choose to dwell on that thought or you can flush it. And there's some thoughts that some of you have that just need to be flushed. Well, I'd be so much better off if it wasn't. Hey, flush that thought. That's not helping you at all. We get our men together sometimes. We got a, a men's prayer breakfast coming up in November. I realize in the eight years of who we call about Baptist Church, we have never had a men's prayer breakfast before. And so we're having a men's prayer breakfast fe- featuring real bacon. How about that? No turkey bacon, not almost bacon, or any of that other beyond bacon or whatever they got. Not real pig fat bacon, right? Amen. I forget where I was going with that. Oh, yeah. Sometimes I tell our men. <laughs> think about the man you want to be. And we use words when we talk about who the men we want to be like. Integrity, character, godly, righteous, holy, strong leader, spiritual. You need to ask yourself those thoughts that you think. Is that helping you become that person that God wants you to be? If it's not, you need to flush it. And again, this is not about surrounding yourself with positive energy, and the more positive thoughts you have, it puts positive energy into the, to the universe, then positive energy comes back to you. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about your life follows your heart. Stop thinking things that are contrary to the Word of God. Stop it. Let those thoughts go. Dwell on the things that the Bible says are true, honest, lovely, all the good stuff that we're going to get into next week. But you have the power to choose where your attention goes. So here's what I'm going to give you. I'm going to give you eight biblical truths to help you keep perspective. On a biblical perspective, I'm going to tell you how to do it. See, I told you like 20 minutes isn't even a good introduction for me. I'm just not getting to the meat of it. I tell you this. I got eight of them. I'll talk fast if you listen fast. Is that a deal? Okay, one person says it's a good deal. I'll talk really slowly for the rest of you folks. I've been in the South for a bit, and so I can talk slow. I'm not going to do that to you. Eight biblical truths to help you keep perspective. First of all, God always has a purpose. Always. Why has this happened to me? I don't know, but I know that God does. What's God trying to do with this? I don't know, but He does. God doesn't do anything by accident. And you say, is does that mean that God caused my suffering? Hmm. Yes, he did. <laughs> God would intentionally take me to a place that's hurtful? Absolutely. Well, that doesn't seem very nice. Nice isn't an attribute of God. It just isn't. Loving, merciful, just, absolutely, all day long. Nice, not one of them. But God also knows what's best. I don't, I don't know what God's doing in your life right now. And frankly, many of you need to stop trying to figure that out. As if you could know the mind of God. It's like 
trying to explain pre-algebra, which nobody understands anyways. They're trying to explain pre-algebra to your dog. Like, hey, if I sit down with him and really explain it to him, he'll get it. He won't. He's a dog. Well, if I could understand the mind of God, you can't. You're a dog. Come on. So we need to recognize God has a purpose in this, and it's not up to us to figure it out. Here's what David said in Psalm 90, verse number two. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever hadst formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, thou art God. Before you ever even created anything, you were God. And by the time everything is gone, you're still God. And if he's God, that means that we are not. I don't really know what God's doing. I'm just gonna let God be God. He knows what he's doing. Next, God's always working for his glory and for our good. Romans chapter 8, verse number 28. For we know that all things work together for good. To who? To them that love God. To them who are the called according to his purpose. For whom he did foreknow, he did also predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. That verse really simply says this. God is always working for your good even when it doesn't feel like it. And he's doing it to help you, verse 29, which often gets left out, he's doing it to help you to be like Jesus. And God wants to be glorified through it. My daughter, Michele, earlier this year was hospitalized with a serious infection. She was within an inch of her life, literally, on a Sunday morning of all times. And didn't know what God was doing. God, what are you doing? Don't know, but he's got a purpose. What does God want? God wants glory through this, and he wants to help me to be better through this. So from the, from the jump, we decided we're not going to ask a lot of questions from God because he doesn't have to explain himself to nobody. I'm just going to try to glorify God through this. And our church family loved us so well through that time. They made posters and came up and saw my daughter outside the, the window. She couldn't go outside, and so they came to the window where she's at and, and had posters, and people showed up. And we took all those posters and signs that people made and cards that people made, and we taped them all across her room. There wasn't a single place on the wall that wasn't covered with cards. And people would come in, nurses and stuff like that, and say, hey, you must have a lot of friends. And we'd say, we got a great church family. We've got an awesome God. And every person that walked in knew we were Christians, we had an incredible church family, and that we were just trusting God through this. Simple as that. Because I know that God wanted glory through it. And so we decided from the get-go, God's going to get glory through this. And hey, you want me to tell you how, how she's still here? God healed her. He gets glory from it. Do, you have, do we have awesome doctors? Definitely, that God put in our place. And so I knew that God wanted glory from that, so that was the idea from the very beginning. Next, God's always good even when it doesn't feel like it. You say, well, if God's good, why doesn't it feel good? Because sometimes God just has to take you through stuff. Again, one of the appallable, I don't think that's a word, heretical, let's just say that, heretical things, what kind of God would take people through suffering? The God of the Bible. Come on. Read the, read the Bible. Obviously, neither of them have ever read the Bible before because you see that God promises suffering. And so when we look at this and we say, hey, it doesn't feel good right now, but I know that God is still good. You just need to, to verify that, rectify that in your mind before you ever go any further. Look at this through the lens of Scripture. I'm going to evaluate things through what the Bible says, and I know that God is always good, even when it doesn't feel like it. Romans chapter 5, verse number 1, therefore being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. 
by whom we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand, rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we glory in tribulations also, knowing that tribulation worketh patience, and patience experience, and experience hope, and hope maketh not ashamed, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost which is given unto us. That verse is so phenomenal. Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. Your difficult times bring something out of you that could not be made otherwise. You got to go through it for what? For the love of God to be shown abroad in your heart through the power of the Holy Spirit. Goodness. But when, when difficult times come, we look at them from a worldly perspective. Why is this happening to me? Why, what's going on here? What's God trying to do? I tried to do God good, but he did me bad. And many of us, I'm guilty of this, have a victim mentality when difficulty comes. Man, I'm trying to live for God, and this happens to me. i got unsaved Joe over here. Everything falls in his lap. Everything goes his way. What about me? And we take on a victim perspective. We go back to a biblical perspective, say, hey, when all this is over, and I'm celebrating in heaven at the marriage supper of the Lamb, where I'm certain that Chick-fil-A with barbecue sauce will be served and waffle fries. Joe's not going to be there. And when I'm reigning and ruling with Christ for all of eternity, Joe won't be there. So I just need to get perspective that this life is short, eternity's long, and if Joe's not going to be there, I need to be concerned that Joe's not going to be there and tell Joe about the gospel. Next, God's ways are greater than ours. Isaiah 55, verse number 9, For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so God's ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. God knows what he's doing all the time. He doesn't have to explain himself to me. I'm thankful sometimes when God kind of shows me like, oh, that's what you were doing. Okay, that's helpful. But God doesn't owe anybody of us any explanation. <laughs> it, always, <laughs> it always cracks me up when people say, yeah, when I get to heaven, I'm going to ask God why he did that. <laughs> no, you're not. You're not. When you're face-to-face with the Shekinah glory of God, the last thing on your mind was, hey, that one time when I was at work and I got written up for being 10 minutes late, when I was actually there, I just hadn't clocked in yet, what was that all about? No, you're not. The glory of God will, will absolutely outshine this world and it will pale in comparison to the glory of God in that moment. So, God doesn't owe you an explanation. Stop looking for one. God's ways are better than your ways. Next, we're not required to understand, only to be obedient. Nowhere in the Bible does God say, get on my level and know what I know. He just says, do this. And we're supposed to say, yes. Got it. Roger. Copy. Wilco. All that. Whatever you say, I'm going to do it. You don't have to understand. Here's the thing. You don't even have to like it. Just do it. Because God knows. He understands. There's been so many times where I've gotten into a situation and say, I know what the Bible says, but I just want to do what I want to do. I know God's going to handle this situation, but I want to take it out of God's hands and handle it myself. Biblical perspective. says, no, I'm going to let God be God, and I'm just going to obey. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, Trust in the Lord of all in heart, lead not to thy own understanding. Next, get this. The story isn't over yet. You see, we look at what happens to us as a snapshot in time, but you forget there's a bigger story coming after this. 
that this moment in time is not just a disconnected moment in time. You're writing your life story. You're writing your family's legacy. You're changing, for some of you, your entire family tree. Don't miss out on that. Your story isn't over yet. Well, Pastor, I prayed for my spouse to be saved, and they're not saved yet. The story isn't over yet. It's not. Well, maybe they'll, they'll die and not be saved. The story still isn't over yet. Again, you look at things from a snapshot. Numbers chapter 21, the children of Israel were super mad at God because God didn't give them what they wanted. Griping, complaining. If you read the Old Testament, it's basically the story of the children of Israel. God's really good, they gripe and complain. God did something different this time. God sent snakes. <laughs> and you want to terrify me? Snakes will do it. God sent snakes and they began to bite people when they bit these people, they died. And Moses says, hey God, if you could just give us a break, that would be awesome. And God says, Moses, do this. Take a stick, and on this stick, I want you to make a serpent of brass. Everybody that looks at that serpent on a stick, lift it up. Everybody that sees that serpent will live. And Moses said, okay, and he did it. And I can imagine everybody going, what in the world is the brass snake about? Man, my, my grandfather died in the wilderness because God sent snakes after everybody. Know this, not everybody made it out of the snake biting thing. Some people died. But everyone who would look to the brass serpent would live, every single one of them. And so there were people who died going, what was the whole brass snake thing about? That was messed up. Like, why couldn't God have been a little bit more gracious? <laughs> Story wasn't over yet. <laughs> you get to the New Testament. What does Jesus say in the book of John? Just like the serpent was lifted up in the wilderness, so shall the Son of Man be lifted up, and all that look to me will be saved. Oh, that's why those people died. Because there were some people who didn't look to the serpent, and they died. It was so that Jesus could be lifted up, glorified, and be a picture of salvation. Got it. Here's the thing. Your story might not ever make it out in your lifetime. But the story isn't over yet. What God's done here at who we call a Baptist church, by the grace of God, will carry on after every single one of us are dead and gone, and there will still be a church that preaches the gospel in this city that declares Jesus until he comes by the grace of God. And what we do is just a, a snapshot on the journey. Because... Again, the story isn't over yet. And again, the story's not about you to begin with. Next, God wants glory from your life. Whatever's going on, what's happening, just keep this in mind. God, I want you to be glorified. I want to make Jesus look good through this. I want people to know that I'm a Christian. I was talking with a younger Christian yesterday in our, our church, and he said, uh, you know, I love being in a new workplace because I get the opportunity to talk about my faith with people. And he says, I just want to make sure that I do it the right way and I don't come off as a Bible thumper and I, I don't do something wrong. I said, here's the worst thing that you can do as a Christian for your witness. Tell everybody that you're a Christian and then live like the world. Because everybody's going to be like, I knew he was a fake. Christians are fake. They're phonies. They're put-ons. You see Christians on TV. They're a bunch of fake, phony, smiley never doubted their faith, everything always goes their way, you just need breakthrough, all that's garbage. The dude lives in a multi-million dollar mansion. Please. All you need to do is 
live your life like the world, and that'll crush your Christian witness. But if you want to call yourself a Christian, you better live by it. We're going to take a look at that tonight or, and uh, next week on the, the book of James. If you call yourself a Christian, live like it because God wants glory. Final thought here. And this one will carry you until you see Jesus. God is faithful. As a pastor, I get the joy of walking with people on the best days of their life. Advancement ceremonies, I've been there. Retirement ceremonies, I've been there. Weddings, I've done it. Babies born, I've been there, prayed for babies. We had child dedications in our church before where we dedicate parents to, to raising their kids for Jesus for the rest of their lives. Been there, done that. Birthday parties, anniversary celebrations, I've done it. It's been a blast. Also, I had to walk with people through the most difficult things in their entire lives. Spouse leaving, I've been there. Spouse is unfaithful, been there. Somebody lost their job, been there. People lost a child, been there. People got cancer diagnosis, been there. People had parts of their body removed, been there. Worst days ever. And in moments like that, you, you struggle to find words to say. And people think like, well, you're a pastor. You got all the things in the Bible to say. I, I get it, but things just don't connect sometimes. It's just like, what do you say? And Angela and I have had probably, I don't know, half dozen to a dozen miscarriages. Like, I understand what it means to lose a child, but like, not like farther along in your term. I don't, I don't know what to say to that. I don't know what to say to somebody who loses a spouse. I've never experienced that before. I don't know what to say to someone who has had their spouse be unfaithful to them. I don't know what to say to that. Someone who's lost their job. Never lost my job in my life. I don't know what to say to that. But there's three words that are always true in every situation, every circumstance, and it's this. God is faithful. Always. And the people in this room that have, I've walked with you through those, I've told you that. And the people that I've been there for your advancement ceremonies, I've told you, God's faithful. Those that have stood with you on your wedding day, I've said, God's faithful. And those of you that I've walked you with through the darkest hours of your days, I've told you this, God is faithful because that will never fail you. But you gotta keep perspective. Why is this happening to me? Why does all the good things happen to other people? Why can't I have what they have? Why can't I just live my life? Okay, stop. Biblical perspective. <laughs> and so, if your mind sets the trajectory for your heart, be careful what you consume. If your mind really tells your heart where to go, be really, really careful with what you put inside of it. Because again, you talk to your neighbor down the street who left her husband and found another dude and life moved on, you're going to think that that's a viable option for you. Be careful. Don't listen to stuff like that. You begin to think like, oh, I got friends that moved to Texas. There wasn't any church within an hour and a half of where they live, but they got six acres of land for $75,000. They're building their dream house. Be careful with that. Hey, look, we had a blast on our vacation. I ate so much Waffle House and Chick-fil-A and Cracker Barrel. We sat on, me and my son sat on the porch at Cracker Barrel in a rocking chair and talked. America, right? 
But I had to stop and tell myself, this is not our reality. But what I experienced in that moment, we went in a, and we're sitting at the table and I, I taught Tallulah that little triangle game where you're supposed to jump the, the golf pegs and everything. She didn't get it. She's four. But <laughs> I tried to explain it to her. Like, uh, and my daughter, McKeely, not interested in it at all. Ben and I was like, I've done that. I beat it. Which he didn't. He would always take the one at the end and like fake it and pretend that he, he didn't. But I thought to myself, like, wow, my kids don't know the triangle game from Cracker Barrel. Like, they don't know the menu at Waffle House. Like, this hurts my heart. <laughs> but then you got to reel it back in. That's not my reality. That's not what God's called me to. This is where God's called me to. But, but what if I never own a house? <laughs> show me the Bible where it says you're going to own a house. Jesus didn't have a house. It was good. Well, show me when I get to have what I want. The Bible never promises you what you want. It says delight yourself in the Lord and he'll give you the desires of your heart. Perspective. That's what it's all about. So be careful what you consume. Some of you should just shut down social media and just be done with it and walk away from it like it never happened. It would help your heart. Some of you, again, I, I'm not trying to be facetious. You're more spiritual than I am in this area of your life. You can do it, and it doesn't affect your, your heart the way it does mine. I couldn't handle it, so I had to cut it off. Some of you got some music that doesn't help your heart. You need to cut it off. Again, we were in Tennessee. We were having a blast. We were listening to the radio. We thought, we'll listen to some country music, right? Man, country music isn't what it used to be. Or I guess I never really looked at it from a biblical perspective. Like every single song was about whiskey and beer and drinking and dancing and, and going out on your girl and, and stuff like that. It's just like, wow, like what happened to like hay rides and bailing hay and riding horses? I don't know. But I mean, it was, and so no lie, we listened to like three songs in a row. It's just like, all right, well, let's turn the radio off because that doesn't help our heart. So some of you got music in your life. You just need to cut it off. But all of us need to think about what we think about. Because protect your heart with all diligence because out of it are the issues of life. Most important thing in the world, if you're here today and you're not saved, please don't leave this place today without knowing for sure your sins are forgiven and heaven is your home. Thanks for joining us for the Hui Kala Baptist Church podcast. We'd love to have you as our guest this Sunday morning at 10 a.m. You'll find exciting classes for your keiki, a welcoming church family, and a message from the Bible that's sure to encourage your heart. Join us this Sunday. You belong here.